Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, this week we talk with Dr. Carla Reidholm, Director of Product Management at Lex Machina, about data analytics and her move from being a pure scientist to the legal market and the data science behind data analytics. I'm really excited about this one. <laughs> I, I am too. So, yeah. so Marlene, I got to go see Hamilton last week while I was in Chicago, and it was so good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as they say, I laughed, I cried a little. Okay, I cried a lot. And it was Aww. and it was even better than cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed Hamilton quite a bit. No Broadway musicals for me this week, but uh, lots of baseball and track. And hey, the snack shack was hopping last night, Greg. <laughs> so I'm glad that my change making skills from working at Hardee's still come in handy. Oh yeah. I worked at a place called New Orleans Famous Fried Chicken when I was in high school. So I'm with you. Everybody should work in fast food. <laughs> I, I always say that. Amen. I really loved getting outside since it's finally starting to warm up around here. Uh yeah, it was ninety degrees here in Houston yesterday. Yeah. Thank you for you're rubbing wo- it. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, before we get too far in, I just wanted to congratulate you. I understand that you won an award for your awesome podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I did. So you got like, what, one or two million dollars as the prize? What? What? Can you tell me more about this? I can't disclose. I can't disclose my award winnings. (laughs) But I do want to say thank you so much to the Private Law Librarians Group uh, and AAAL for giving me this award. You know, this this podcast is definitely near and dear to my heart. I enjoy doing it. And I am so happy that they recognized the commitment that's involved and the importance of new media. Yes, because I think you're the first one to win on the podcast side of things. I believe I am. All right. Congratulations. Thank you. And with that, let's jump right into our Information Inspiration. So, Greg, I read an article titled The Value of Inconvenient Design, which... I love that title. I know. It just just drew me in immediately, (laughs) which discussed in depth the friction versus value curve. Now, what is the friction versus value curve, you ask? I was just asking that. I'm so happy that you did. Well, let me give you an example. So, There was a study done where people were asked to build an Ikea storage box versus being given one that was Mm pre-made. People associated more value to the box if they had to build it versus getting it pre-made, but only if building it was not too complicated. So too much friction, which would be the difficulty in assembly, destroys value, but it adds more value than if no work was required. Hmm. So there, there's your balance. Interesting. As someone who has put together more than one piece of IKEA furniture, there's a lot of friction involved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so true. It's a good thing they didn't have us in the study. <laughs> yeah. One, one tool is one tool too many for me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... The author says humans are friction obsessed, and and I don't think this is wrong. I mean, it's the main focus of what we discuss here, and you see it in many of the innovation articles we read and the conferences we attend. Mm -hmm. So 
it's like the six million dollar man syndrome. You know, we can build it stronger, better, faster. And it all ties back to what? To revenue. The author says that over time, we've increasingly tied the value of technology to the revenue it can generate as opposed to the benefit it can deliver to humans who use it. Mm. Our economic system feeds on the belief that eliminating all friction is our road to happiness. Yet the data says no, and we are reaching a point of diminishing returns particularly in younger generations who feel they have less of a purpose despite the rise of technology and apps to make life easier. Hmm. The author cites a study on that. Okay. So I think after reading this, you know, we need to understand what problems are worth solving because they're holding people back and what's really not a problem at all. Yeah. And I think this goes back to the theme in many of our shows centering around design thinking. You have to identify what's actually a problem and work backward from that. So simply making something easier just because we can through improved process or tech may actually devalue the experience and make the people involved more unhappy. Mm. And I think this concept is going to tie in nicely with some of our discussion points with our guests today. I agree. And I like the part where you talk about getting to the solution and working your way backward. So because there's so many times we've said it a lot on the show and I've said it to many people in that it does no good to have a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Exactly. Well, my topic is on the exciting world of mergers, acquisitions, and strategic alliances. Woohoo! Let me get my popcorn. <laughs> yeah, at the snack shack. <laughs> so you mentioned last week that Thomson Reuters Pangea 3 was purchased by Ernst & Young. Man, it was all over the news this week. So, yes. So kudos to you for being on the front side of that news curve, Marlene. Scoop! Yay. <laughs> it's the scoop. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been a few more deals that have gone down that may not have caught as much press, but are still pretty big deals in the legal information world. And so a couple that I've seen recently are VLEX acquired uh, Justice, and which teams up two of my favorite, and if you'll notice, I spelled favorite with a U, people in the world, Canadian Colin <laughs> Lachance and Britt Masad Jarami. So this will create a powerhouse of foreign and international law data. So I'm excited for both of them. I think it's, they're going to make a great team. That's going to be great. The other one that I've seen is, uh, you know, Fastcase keeps expanding its reach with another uh, alliance that they announced this week with an expert witness product, actually two, uh, Juris Pro and Courtroom Insight. Our friend Ed Walters kind of hinted, I think, at this deal during his interview a few weeks ago, and it seems that Fastcase is very serious in becoming more than just a primary law provider, and they're going full bore into the legal information services model. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in between you and me, I hope he gets a legal news operation up and running and gives some of these players a little run for their money, if you know what I mean. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> nudge, nudge. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> All right. Well, Greg, mm-hmm. my my last one that to share is like, I'm mad. What? You? Yes. Huh. Yes. All right. So I saw a piece on NBC News about h- how AI is changing the art world. Okay. So the Met, MIT, and Microsoft are working together to predict what will appeal to art lovers using social media profiles and preferences. Hmm. And I just, I I heard that and and my head kind of exploded. You know, call me old fashioned, but you know, I want to be surprised and challenged by art. You know, I want to, I want to flex some muscles. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) 
you know, I don't just want to see stuff that I already like. I already know that I like that. I, you know, I, w- I want to see some different things and, and be challenged. I don't know. Maybe you'll be surprised. Maybe it'll be nothing but troll art. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> true. No, I, I I shouldn't diss it before I actually try it. <laughs> oh yeah, this may fall under that. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. But we'll see. We'll see what they come up with. All right. All right. So finally, Marlene, I listened to a Thomson Reuters podcast this week, which featured Trevor Four, who is head of Smarter Law Solutions, and he's the former head of Global Legal Services at Ernst and Young. So Four has a new book out called Smarter Law Transforming Business lawyers into business leaders. And although I kind of found the interview to be a bit self-serving on both TR and Forrest part, because TR is the publisher of the book, by the way. Um, oh. Yeah. So, but there were some really good insights from someone that was at Ernst & Young and understands where they seem to be going and cracking open the U.S. legal market, you know. And as the saying goes, keep your friends close. Uh-huh. Amen. Uh, and yeah, let, <laughs> and, let you and go your enemies closer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, EY. <laughs> and Greg? Yes? That completes our Information Inspirations. All right, Marlene, before we talk with Dr. Carla Reitholm, I wanted to put a quick little plug out for the new AALL State of the Profession Survey book, which is out and available for purchase now. And Marlene, I know you put a lot of work into the survey, and I'm excited to get my copy, which I guess they started mailing them out on Friday. So I'll put a link up on the show notes for the AALL site with some more details on the survey and how to purchase your own copy. Yeah, Greg, I certainly cannot take all the credit here. Natalie Lira and Chris Lout and Megan Mall and Heidi Letzman from AALL and a consulting firm all worked hard on this survey. And many of the AALL members gave feedback on the questionnaire and really tightened it up. So thank you all for that. This took about a year to get together. Wow. Yeah, and a lot of thought was put into this preparation. The survey really does offer some great insights into where your information centers are headed. You know, I encourage everyone to get a copy. not many people can make the transition from topics like genetics and evolutionary biology to the practice of law focused on First Amendment issues, and then transition again into the world of legal analytics. But today we're talking to someone who did just that. Dr. Carla Reinholm has a PhD in genetics and genomics and microbiology. And as if that isn't enough, she also has her law degree, both from Duke University. For the past decade or so, Dr. Reitholm has been working in the field of legal analytics at Lex Machina. So, Dr. Reitholm, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Greg. And, and just for fun, we also have uh, sidekick. sidekick Kyle Davikin. Yeah, well, he's the local. This is my first time to Houston. I'm oh, well, really excited to be here, so thanks for having welcome. me. Welcome. So, yeah, it's a good city to, to visit in April. So, Carla, obviously someone as talented as you are in the field of sciences, why in the world would you decide to enter the legal field? All right. Well, when I was in grad school, I knew I wanted to combine that experience, the insight you get from working on your project with the real world. 
So while my friends and colleagues were daydreaming about having their laboratories and their grad students, I was thinking about what I wanted to tie that science background with. So I audited a journalism course, I audited a law school course, and was just really enamored. I loved being at the law school and being around people that were really thinking about society, all kinds of different issues, and got inspired to apply and ended up following up the work I did in uh, the biology department at Duke with a stint in their law school and then graduated and now found a way to combine that sort of background. You mentioned the grad school and then First Amendment and now um, working at Lex Machina. Really what the, the common thread there is data. I love finding answers, good answers uh, to questions that are interesting or maybe, you know, there's only speculation on. So that's that's really how uh, I explain uh, my uh, various uh, personas that I've had so far. Yeah. And you'd mentioned before we jumped on and started recording that at Duke, the law school and the uh, graduate school that you were in were like right next door to each other. That's, it, that's true. So, and while I was finishing my dissertation, it was so inspiring to see the law school. I'd see people in the library studying late at night and they were all together. And when you're in science, you do a lot of work by yourself. You're at your lab bench by yourself and you know you have some lab mates you can talk to and then every now and again go to a conference where other people find your work interesting. <laughs> but it, just that immediate feedback and sort of being part of a big, the big picture, that's really what drew me to law school. Yeah, that's how the law library world is. You go to a conference and you hope somebody finds whatever you're talking about interesting. So. <laughs> So we've spoken a bit on the program about how analytics alone don't tell the whole story. You know, you need context, you need insight along with the analytics. So can you tell me what are the, the right analytics and, and what else do you think is needed to tell a compelling story with them? Oh, that's that's an awesome question, Marlene. Honestly, it's it's something that I think practitioners who are getting accustomed to having the availability of data, whether it's the history of what's happened in cases like your own, sort of to really complement what you know as a practitioner. And from what you know of what matters for your client, I mean, what happens in terms of the litigation in a courtroom from Lex Machina, we know that's only part of the story. But if there are real world numbers out there to either advise your client on what will likely happen or what's happened before to make a decision today, that's their idea is that you can really combine your insight as a practitioner with some real world objective data. Um, to make your own decisions and, and cancel your, your client. And we know like numbers are used all the time. Data is used all the time in the practice of law. I know people like to joke that lawyers don't like math, but I mean... Oh, I'm going to get into that in a minute. <laughs> in negotiation, <laughs> agreement or trying to approximate damages. I mean, th that's math. That is, those are numbers. Those are known um, sort of quantities that whether you're, you're budgeting how much something might cost to get to a certain phase of the court, you could have a good sense of that. But also having data to kind of anchor your rationale is really our goal. Sticking with the, with the storyline here, how do you determine what story needs to be told? So do you look at what the data is telling you or do you look at what you think would be an important outcome and then try to work backwards and determine what data can get you to that story? That's, I'm going to reframe the question a little bit and mm -hmm. that there's sort Please of Please do, because I don't this, know what I'm talking about. No, no, it's, it's, it's a great sort of a, this is duality of, well, do you look at the data? Because at Lex Machina, we do have this privilege, honestly, of having this massive case set, for example, of an, an area of law. For example, employment law will have 
all of the cases for a particular court. And so we could, knowing what's there, then design a product that kind of maps to showing what the, the data could get you to. But um, anytime we want to put something out for customers, I mean, we need to talk to customers, we do thought leader interviews, and really always seek feedback along the way to know where if you could have any data for your practice to help with your decision making, what what do you want? And so we do a, a combination of both focus on how law is practiced in um, different aspects. So for employment, for example, there may be like nuanced practice that has how FLSA work is done. So it's like Fair Labor Standards attorneys, um, act attorneys have all kinds of insight into what kinds of cases are going right now in the court that may really differ from what's going on in a discrimination case under Title VII. However, there may be something about the early pleadings where there is just consistency across the board of how a judge treats something they consider employment law. So looking at the whole case set together could be helpful, but then also you want to slice and dice it to get as, as specific as you can before you run into a sample size issue sometimes. But. Well, let, let me ask you this. As a lawyer that is using the data analytics, should I be expecting this to kind of predict what an attorney, what a judge oh. does, or is it just more of a, a guide? Because I've I've seen kind of advertisements mm-hmm. uh, as as more and more legal services providers come in, or legal information services providers come in and say, "Hey, we have the analytics, we have mm-hmm. the projections," and I've seen you know companies that say, "Oh, well, we can we can predict right. how a judge." Do you do you think the data? can do that or is it is it something less or should we be looking at it in a different way well the way that that i view how to use data and whether it's predictive i mean in the sense that you as a practitioner if you're looking at information that tells you about timing i'll just focus on timing because it's a good example it's very concrete i just mentioned it um, previously so time to certain phases of a case how long does it typically take a particular judge to get to summary judgment? How long has it taken so far to get to trial? So if I see those numbers as an attorney, you can't help but filter, well, what does that mean? Well, what could likely happen based on the past, if what's happened before bears any resemblance to what might happen to us in our case, then that can help you predict. So I wouldn't say that the data is predicting, it's more how you interpret it. Um, But it's important, I think, when thinking about where legal analytics is headed to really understand, well, what is being predicted? If it's a prediction of like, like how likely is something to happen? That's different than like for, fortune telling or, you right. know, forecasting. This is certain. It's like, no, it's not. We all know about these extraordinary cases, extraordinary fact patterns, externalities outside of the court. You don't have the whole picture, at yeah. least right now, based on... <laughs> Judge had a bad sandwich at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or something really special that changes precedent. That still happens. A witness who is just so uncredible to the jury, you know that they know what they're talking about, but they did not do well right. on that. Mm-hmm. So your mileage may vary depending on, mm-hmm. on the situation. So yeah, okay, thanks. So what are the dangers surrounding the lack of transparency around analytics? So like in science and statistics, you know, there's requirements to follow to prove consistency and repeatability. Mm-hmm. Yet in legal databases, the algorithms are proprietary and the data sets are often not exactly the same. So the results vary from platform to platform. And this makes it difficult for the end user to know if the analysis they're seeing is, is actually correct. So is the 
can we go back to the, the question? You set it up perfectly, but I just want to make sure I get really <laughs> like really focused. There's all kinds of things that we could talk about with regards to how analytics are assembled. So I just wanted to back up, make sure, sure I focus on what you all think would be interesting to chat about right now. Well, I mean, what I'm asking is is the dura- the danger surrounding the lack of transparency because you know often in these databases we you know nobody knows what the secret sauce is and mm-hmm. it's not clear what the data sets are that are being used and and if they're the same across different platforms. And so, you know, there's no rule that sort of needs to be applied across the board for all of these platforms. And that's that's kind of what makes it difficult to evaluate them and and evaluate the results. Got it. So... Some of the the terms that you use to frame um, your question, which I I understand what you're getting at. Um, One of them was proprietary. It's just the idea that if there's engineering work or an algorithm work that's gone in to um, design a feature and you're in the the website and you're like, oh, is this magic? (laughs) How does this work? Uh And while there may be a number you can click on and see the underlying cases, you may still wonder, well, but how, you know, how is this data set assembled? And so I think that's where there is a real movement and desire for teams and the product team at Lux Machina really does work with our marketing team to try and communicate what we're doing. So it might be something simple like, okay, so I've heard Lux Machina supplements the attorney record, you know, that Pacer maybe doesn't, Pacer is a database for like filing and court records. They're not building a database for legal analytics companies to design their whole product around, right? They're providing access to public records. But when it comes to the attorney data, Lex Machina does supplement it, for example, by adding pro vitae attorneys who are in docket entry text, or there's a signature block in documents, key documents. And so how we pull out the names, that may, you know, that is proprietary in that you could come and sit with one of our programmers, one of our algorithms experts and watch like what the code is. But I think for the most part, it's pretty intuitive. The rules and the examples for what's correct, those all come from people. (laughs) And while algorithms is this sort of abstract, like what is an algorithm? I mean, for the most part, it's different kinds of assemblers of words that you and I would recognize. So if I'm working with one of our algorithms team on the signature block, this well, the attorney's name is on the motion, I want them in the R database, for example, like Smokina. Well, how do you know what a signature block is? <laughs> so that was a whole conversation sort of around, well, there's this line and it has like a scrawl on it, <laughs> someone's <laughs> signature and just where placement is and going through this process of defining what it is that you're trying to pull out. I mean, it's pretty easy for me to explain. Yeah, we add names based on signature block and names that show up in the documentary text. Those are all algorithms, like how it's done. And I'm not part of that team that can do the work, but it's very exciting working with them because you can prescribe rules that then you can describe to customers or users. Say, yeah, there are additional attorneys. They come from the signature block and documentary text. So hopefully that isn't, you know, imperceptible. You know, really anyone who knows like the legalese side (laughs) of sort of what documents are. So I think it's, there's a real owner burden on the companies, including ours, to explain how we're doing what we do in a way that you feel satisfied that you can trust it. That's really important. I was going to say, it's like, you know, I think there are some vendors who, who do this much better than others. And, and, and honestly, that's kind of what prompted the, the question that, uh, you know, you, you do have some that are very transparent and others who are, are less so. You know, it's still a challenge, you know, for, you know, us on the other side, the consumers to 
have to, and also us being the, the information professionals, the liaisons, you know, being able to translate that uh, for all of the users for each of the different platforms, since everything is sort of slightly different. Yeah. yeah and, and I think one of the things that we're probably hypersensitive to, and it goes to a paper published by University of Colorado, Susan Nevelo Mart, mm-hmm. and that is that, and, and I think this is more with legal research that deals with primary law, is that you can run essentially the same search on five different platforms and get five completely different set of results. Back. Oh, sure. And search, and, that's all that. Yeah. Not the eye of the beholder, but it's like, what is it that you're looking for in searches? That is a very, you know, that's some very like powerful sort of a realm right. that, like that is um, subjective. Like, what is the best search? And, and analytics, not as subjective? Well, I think how I define analytics, so the aggregation of information that's meaningful, meaning that it's appropriate to compare (laughs) what's happened in other cases with perhaps the case you're currently in or a case that you want to be in if you're (laughs) looking to pitch a a, a client that is, it's essentially something that can be defined, something where it's it's very tangible what you're looking at. Whereas with search, that is where you you can ask some questions, but that is, that is get pretty complicated pretty fast. Yeah, I can imagine. And one of the things, I was at South by Southwest a couple of weeks ago, and one of the best phrases I heard was, content is king, mm-hmm. context is queen. With you, you're, you're a data person, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you go about, and I'll, I'll just relate data with content uh, mm-hmm. here. And so how are you guys working on gathering more and more content? Because I can, I can tell you this right now. Yeah. If, I, if I stick a product in front of an attorney, the first thing they're going to do mm-hmm. is pull up something that they know. Oh, of they're course. They're going to pull up themselves. Yeah, smart. They're going to yeah. pull up their firm. Mm-hmm. And they're going to point out any and everything that they see is missing. For sure. So when you have a product like this, especially when you're dealing with dockets, mm-hmm. that with the federal dockets, there's a, a lot of uniformity in that. Not as much as we would hope, but still a lot of uniformity. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to state mm-hmm. uh, data, there's lots a, of holes. Yeah, there's lots of holes, it's, and it's just different. So one, how are you how are you gathering that? And then two, what are what are some of the major uh, projects that you're working on right now? All right. So when it comes to uh, state content collection. So that's often sort of something that uh, the team invests in and has to be very methodical because as you said, that content content is king. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's the foundation. Um, so putting a lot of thought into getting complete case records and then finding a way to keep it updated. So we found um, you assemble a data set and then the next day the court moves on. <laughs> there are more cases, there are more um, documents filed. And so both being responsible in terms of having complete coverage and then making sure that you have in data, data integrity when it comes to how that content is processed and then presented to the user. is sort of, I would say, equally as important as the content and the context for offering up the information from the cases is that experience, that user experience. I'm not sure if that what, what the metaphor is there, but that's where it's really like the whole court. You know, how how are you getting it out to the people, to the users? And so, I can give an example of how Lexmachan approaches these challenges. Please um, do. <laughs> right now, we're just getting going with. A few projects, uh, a few new modules that involve state courts. 
and we're focused on state courts that are in major business centers. And we are taking a sort of a, a court by court approach in terms of trying to tackle like a whole entire state. And what we're finding there is that it's it's a challenge to efficiently collect um, the complete case and get the documents that we want, but that it's, it's doable. Courts have all kinds of mandates right now. Different states have mandates to have access to information. And as attorneys, you appreciate with better e-filing and sort of all the progress that's being made there, it means there are great databases and interactions with courts who are either cognizant that they know there are vendors like us, like Machina, out there interested in assembling data sets. So they either have some rules, some sanity rules, so their websites don't get taken down and, you know, sort of known best practices that they put out that maybe you wouldn't have seen five years ago, right on the court website. So part of it is um, just understanding the lay of the land with the courts and making sure that we're being responsible to have a good system to get all the data and then make sure it stays complete before we even really turn our attention to thinking about how we're going to present it. So that's like we really sort of meditate on how to get a complete data set because without that underlying content, your next step is already set up for success if you you feel really good about that underlying data. So Greg had referenced, you know, given the example of, of you know, an attorney sees, sees the product, looks up something they know, and then immediately tries to pick it apart if it's not something that makes sense to them. So I'll give you another one where it's like, well, you know, I already know this court and I know these judges and, you know, I know what's going to happen. What do you find are some of the challenges of, of using analytics in a historically, you know, anti-numbers and experience-driven industry? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. The reason I'm pausing is that on the one hand, See, I don't know I would, about you, but I know Greg and I like went to, to law school because mm-hmm. you know we didn't we didn't want to do math. Yeah. So that was a great history major. Yeah. yeah. Well, but on the other hand, you're you're both rational people. So if you're given information, well, I am, um, yeah. and and you will use it. You will. Don't ask my wife about that. <laughs> you 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 would choose you would choose to use it if that information was compelling or helped your argument or you know substantiated it's something that was helpful to your client. So it's, it's sort of this idea of having another tool and being able to see analytics information. It's out there. It's history. So maybe I'll, I'll change tack. So a lot of folks who traditionally go to law school have a history background. Well, want to learn from history, you can think of analytics as a very comprehensive, uh, you know, sort of this uh, complete history to understand what's happened before, to uh, potentially think about where you stand in terms That's of numbers. A really good idea. <laughs> but I think um, we do, whether we want to make sure that the data representations and analytics that are put out there, the people understand them, like to your point where they look up their, themselves. That's a great way to get started to sort of understand what it is that you're looking at because a practitioner would know how many cases they've been in this year. So why not look your name up? On the other hand, if you want to put up some statistical representation that's accurate in terms of how cases resolve, making sure that it's just consumable. Just at a glance, all of us on this call right now could look at it and have, you know, sort of the, t- the takeaway of, well, what proportion of cases settled? Well, I see 50%. <laughs> is that true? Well, we all kind of just agree the number is yeah. 50. <laughs> so you don't have to really, you know, get into like numbers. It's, it's sort of there's information out there and why not use it? Kyle, I'll bring you in on this conversation. What's what's the hardest part of the data analytics and understanding it that attorneys have the hardest part understanding? Yeah, that's a good question. I think 
they have a hard time understanding win loss percentages. They have also have a hard time sort of just looking at how we perceive the data because it's pretty straightforward. But they're look at, as attorneys, you're always looking for an angle and you want to interpret the data in the light most favorable to you or your client. Uh, and we're like Switzerland. We just report the data. <laughs> and don't call, you know, don't have any sides. Uh, so I think the firms want to interpret it in, in a way that is most favorable to them. Well, most favorable to them and perhaps most familiar how they would define it. Something that's really interesting with Lex Machina we all probably in this room could write our definition of a patent case, for example. What is a patent case? And they might differ a little bit, but Lex Machina does choose to curate essentially definitions and then try and make sure people understand what what our definition is. But for example, um, I talked with a, a customer once, one of the Lex Machina users who was an employment law firm, and they just told me that they expect any case that their firm handles because they're an employment firm to be in this particular analytic. And that included patent cases, included copyright cases. There was no employment claim anywhere, but they just, their definition was very, very broad. And that was just a really interesting learning was like really when you're using language, but then combining data that you're just very careful in um, having legends, having awesome help text, all that kind of thing. So people can use it and sort of Tim Marlene's original question about like, can they trust it? Well, they can understand what it is they're looking at and then decide if, if, if the definition we've chosen, you know, maps to the definition that they want to use. Right. And it helps to have Kyle's phone number. (laughs) (laughs) So this is really all very interesting discussion about sort of lawyers and, and, you know, how they interpret the data and whether they'll use the data. Are, are they actually the correct audience for a deep dive into using and manipulating the data to make evidence-based decisions? Or is it the legal support professionals or other professionals? Can, can any of us handle this? Can, can, yeah. <laughs> who, who's, who's, the right, who's really the right audience here? Or well, is it all of us? I mean, I think that this kind of goes to your point of just people wanting to have integrity and feel responsible when using information or, you know, submitting something to the court or counseling a client. Like I would say a practitioner, their team of associates, knowledge managers, that really it's it's important to be fluent so you can talk to each other, talk to the court talk to customers like that to me makes sense. Marlene, she's turned our own words against us. I know. I was listening. <laughs> I'm like, oh, she sounds like us. <laughs> I think the two use cases are to win business and to win cases. Uh, and anybody who's involved in either side of that, whether it's win business, the business development folks use our product all the time to respond to RFPs in real time. In twin cases, it's the attorneys and everyone that supports the attorneys to figure out the best litigation strategy. Should you should you file a case in New Jersey or in Texas? Right. Which venue is best? Um, New Jersey is going to hopefully Texas <laughs> give you a. <laughs> I agree with Texas. Oh my goodness! All right, no. <laughs> outnumbered. Outnumbered. Uh, two for Texas, one for New Jersey, I'm and one say for New Jersey. Oh no, oh. we have a tie. <laughs> It's just just bring it all the way around. <laughs> I, I got your back, Marley. So thank th- you, thank you. This could actually go to either one of you. Do you do you have a favorite analytics story? Something that has gone really well Push when people have, have have used the analytics. 
I have one, um, if you don't mind, Carla. <laughs> there, there was a firm, and I can't use any of the names, but um, they it, it was a, a, a case that was, they were sued, their client was sued in the uh, uh, the northern United States or the East Coast. and New Jersey. Uh, no. <laughs> maybe. Potentially. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the client wanted to remove it to the Western District of Texas where they're located. And that was pretty a simple decision or so they thought until they looked at the data and the data was clear that the judge that they had drawn in uh, the Northeast, New Jersey, um, it was much more favorable. So they ended up um, See? Yeah. summary judgment and winning on summary judgment. And boy, that the, they look smart to their uh, client. And the reality is they just, they were really smart to use the data to uncover that the, their case at hand was much more favorable in the Northeast. Yeah. All right. Kyle just undercut our Texas vote. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a cool question. I'm sort of pausing to think a little bit. Um, I have a few friends now who, uh, after practicing, are now um, in-house counsel, and just this idea of what happened at another company in court could happen to us. And so this this is a little bit going to your foretell a fortune telling or you know predictive outcome as it it was uh, for a particular friends. This was when I was still early at Lex Machina when people would ask me, how do you say the name of Lex Machina? And I'm like, Lex Machina, you know, it's I a, still get that early. Question. Yeah. So um, but she, she basically just hearing like a cool success story of being able to read up on a new plaintiff um, that that they hadn't heard of as a tech company. They hadn't heard of this plaintiff and they were able to just quickly, very, very quickly look up what the track record was and just understand like who they're dealing with without having to stress too much and just really quickly being able to like kind of sort how to handle that matter. And it was one of those situations where um, they ended up not going to court, but uh, handling things like pretty efficiently for their client yeah. based on what had happened with essentially like a peer company. Um, with that same plan. That's interesting because I, I would say that that's not necessarily a prediction that mm-hmm. you're, but it's changing behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's that's something of definite value. If, whenever you can do something that changes behavior, that's a big win. If I could brag on Carla and her team for a second. Please do. Another story we had, our, one of our, our customers told us that they needed help, a corporate uh, counsel needed help choosing a law firm. And he said when he hires, you know, XYZ law from the largest law firms in the country or the world for that matter, he's not hiring the law firm. He's hiring two or three, maybe five at the maximum attorneys from that particular law firm. And he said our tool at that time didn't really give him that opportunity. So we took that information and Carla and her team and the development team built a, an app that allows a, a user to put in three names and the lawyers will will show when they've worked together, how often they've worked together, have they won or lost, what their experience is, what kind of cases they've worked on, all those sorts of things. So the value when they're choosing a law firm is really key because he made the comment, the work, he at one point hired a firm where he introduced two of the attorneys who worked for the same firm to each other. And he thought that that was absolutely ludicrous because he was paying them, you know, <laughs> thousands of dollars an hour to their two lawyers. So that's just one way that we were sort of been able to be nimble enough um, as a small company to create an app based on user input that made a difference to not just that user, but to hopefully everybody in our universe. 
Yeah, now we're, we're getting into cool success stories in terms of how to use data, but I'll never forget one of the first times I talked with a customer, and it was a bank. This was quite a while ago. When I described our database to the customer, he was thrilled that we had such a database um, coming into focus. And he said, can I get access? Like he wanted to be able to write queries himself. And so that's when I knew we were kind of onto something, but that it was really on us to figure out what, how to combine data, how to present it, how to help our users get to the the analytics that was meaningful for them. That's interesting. Have have you ever thought about allowing a little bit more read-write access is yeah, uh, custom. What people do you've heard before. Yeah, I think I think there's there's certainly you know an appetite for like a essentially a very sophisticated search <laughs> of right. some sort. But at present, we're just we're sticking with the website website interface. But yeah, there's as there's more and more data out there. We have more and more levels of sophistication and interest in terms of really understanding what it is you're you're trying to pull. So we'll see where we are. A couple more years. But. <laughs> Well, this has been a great conversation, and I, I want to thank you both for, for taking the time to speak with us. I think this is, this is going to be very interesting to the listeners. Absolutely. So thanks again, uh, Dr. Carla Reidholm and Kyle Davikin from Lex Machina. Kyle's giving me the thumbs up. I finally said his name right. I've, I've known you for like four years and I, I still screw it up. Sorry. He still, he still says, hey, you. Hey, thank, thanks for coming in and thanks for helping me hit happy hour before we start this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Marlene and Greg. You're welcome. That was a lot of fun. I'm glad we had a chance to sit down and talk with Carla and Kyle on the about legal analytics and what they're doing there at Lex Machina and what the, what the overall industry is doing. I liked your question whether or not this was actually the the right industry to present these kind of analytics, and I think it is, but it's just going to take a while for I think the most attorneys and and even some of the people that, in the knowledge services. Uh, industry to to adjust to what it means to to have data analytics in in the legal field. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a new information source that that you know we didn't have readily available before, and so I think people are just sort of discovering what they can can do with it. And you know I don't know that we completely answered the the transparency question across platforms, but it's nice to see that at least, you know, some vendors are, are, you know, thinking about it and trying to make at least their own platforms more transparent while we uh, move towards some sort of consistency. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's going to be a while before we have any, any semblance of transparency. Yeah. But I will, I will say that that, that makes the, the whole buy-in and adoption yes. harder um, yes, as a whole. All right. Well, I think that wraps up another one, Marlene. It does. It does indeed. So remember to subscribe to the Geek and Review on your favorite podcast platform. And you can contact us on Twitter at, at GayBauerM or at Glambert with your comments or suggestions. Or you can call us on that famous Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270 and leave us some ideas for topics that we should cover in the future. And thanks to Jerry David DeSicca for the awesome music that you hear on the podcast. See you later, Marlene. Bye. Don't